Well, good morning, everybody. We're glad you're here. So a thing happened this week. I went to the barber shop and I said, give me the Johnny haircut. <laughs> Still got a ways to go, huh? <laughs> so uh, um, I, I, I love it. I walked in the, into the church and took off my hat and Dr. Cox went, whoa. <laughs> oh, okay, anyway, so we got that out of the way. Let's stand up and let's sing. There's a new name written down in glory, and it's mine. It's yours. Here we go. I was lost in shame, could not get past my blame till he called my changed me darkness held me down but jesus pulled me out and i'm no longer bound i'm so glad he changed me see i now a new creation in christ the old is gone there's new life i live by faith not by sight Open my eyes, now I see the light. I'm so glad he changed me, now I'm walking free. I've got the victory, see it's all over me. I'm so glad he changed me, see I, now a new creation in Christ. The old is gone, the old is gone, Who I am because the I am tells me who I am. 
can be seated. you stand with us and let's sing together. will come to pass 
my heart will sing your praise again. Jesus, you're still enough. Keep me within your love. My heart will sing your Your promise still stands, great is your faithfulness, faithfulness. I'm still in your hands, this is my confidence, you never failed. Your promise still stands, great is your faithfulness.
come before you now, running to your side, Lord, running to your heart, running to the Father. Will you sing this with me? So I run to the Father 
Oh, Lord, we come before you this morning. We, we run to you. We run to you because you are our salvation. We have no hope apart from you. And so, Lord, you are our shelter. You are our fortress. You are our peace and our solace, Lord. We come to you this morning seeking your face, seeking your heart. And so, Lord, this morning as we step into this time of, uh, of hearing from you, Lord, Lord, we pray that you'll open our ears and our hearts that we may know you better today, that we may become more like you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Thank you, guys. That was great. Great worship today. Good morning. Good to see you. Glad you're here. I want to add to what Tim said, my uh, invitation to you to be a part of a connection group today. This is open house in connection groups. That just means that connection groups are expecting guests and inviting guests and welcoming them. So it's a great time for you to take that next step if you're here just for large group worship and get in a small group connection group. You go to the Welcome Center after this service. A greeter will be there. They'll show you a list of groups. There's something for every age group. Adult groups are uh, graded loosely by age or life situation. You can try one. They'll escort you there. You'll be made welcome there, be other guests there. So encourage you to connect on this Open House Sunday with our small group connection groups. I'm sharing a series of sermons entitled Fresh Start this month. And we're looking at stories in the Bible of people who found a fresh start in life through an encounter with Jesus. My prayer is that you'll be able to identify with at least one of these Bible characters uh, that you might find a fresh start. We believe that it's through Jesus that you can have a new beginning. You can find a fresh start in life. So today... I want to share you, with you a story of a person who had tried to have a fresh start and failed, and tried to have a fresh start and failed, and tried to have a fresh start and failed over and over again. What if you have failed in life multiple times? Well, the story is found in John chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. Let's read it together. It says, now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. That's John the Baptist. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. So John the Baptist was sent to be the forerunner of Jesus. Jesus now was gaining popularity, but Jesus didn't want to be in competition with John in Judea. He affirmed his work. So he goes back north, Galilee to the north, Judea to the south. And he's going to go back to his hometown area of Nazareth and around the Sea of Galilee. Capernaum will become the center of his ministry. He leaves Judea to go back to Galilee. And so it says, verse 4, now he had to go through Samaria. Let me share with you some Bible background here. It'll help you all through this story to understand it. Let me tell you who the Samaritans were. So you've got three areas or provinces, Judea and then Samaria and then Galilee. So to go from Judea to Galilee had to go through Samaria. So in the Old Testament history, the nation of Israel, after the time of David and Solomon, it divided. There was civil war and it divided north and south. The northern kingdom took t uh, ten tribes, kept the name of Israel. The southern kingdom of Judah, uh, two tribes, two nations. 
God allowed the northern kingdom of Israel, because of their sin, to be conquered by Assyria. And what Assyria did when they conquered a nation, they took people out of that land into exile, and that's what they did with the Israelites, and then they brought other conquered people in. There was a swap of population, a mixture, so people from five other conquered nations came to this area of Israel to live. That strategy was you couldn't rebel, there wouldn't be cohesion, there wouldn't be common language. So that was their strategy with displaced peoples. And so only the poor of the Israelites were left in the land, and these other nations were brought in, and they intermarried, and uh, they uh, could not didn't have a religion, and they asked the king of Assyria to, to send them a priest. You can read all this in 2 Kings 18, if you want more of the story. And so the king of Assyria sent them, one of those conquered priests, back to that land, and this is where the Samaritans came from. So they were this intermingling of religions and of peoples, and so the Jews looked down upon their Samaritan neighbors as ethnically compromised, religiously, theologically uh, Uh, compromised and there was a great animosity between them so the southern kingdom of Judah was conquered by Babylon but God allowed them to come back intact because the promises of the Messiah were coming through that tribe of Judah and so there was not this intermixing they came back to Judah and they started to rebuild the temple and the Samaritans wanted to help and the Jews would not let them help you can read it in the book of Ezra Nehemiah came and they started to build the wall around Jerusalem And there was competition, and the Samaritans tried to attack and tried to prevent the wall from being built. Uh, The Samaritans finally, on Mount Gerizim in their land, built their own temple. They don't have a part in Jerusalem, so they built their own temple on Mount Gerizim. When the Jews gained independence, they destroyed the Samaritans' temple on Mount Gerizim about 150 years before Jesus. Do you see there's bad blood between these two groups You see that they don't get along. There's animosity there. And so the Samaritans accepted only the first five books of the Old Testament, what we call the law. They didn't accept all the part that says, I'm putting my name in Jerusalem down there in Judah, and that's where you'll go to worship. They didn't accept the words of the prophets that said the Messiah will come through Judah because there's animosity there. And so the Samaritans were were hated by the Jews and vice versa. Incidentally, there are still Samaritans alive today. It is probably the world's smallest religious group. There are 840 in the 2021 census Samaritans still in Israel, two communities, one near Tel Aviv, and one of about 400 people in this very spot that we're going to read about today on the slopes of Mount Gerizim near this village that we will see. So... It says he had to go through Samaria. So in verse 5, he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, as tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. So what's this plot that Jacob, when he was in the land long before the exodus, he bought this area from the Canaanites. And when Jacob, now down in Egypt, they'd been gone to Egypt, when he's about to die, he says to his son Joseph before he dies, I'm giving you this plot of land that I bought early in my life up there in in the promised land. When you get to go back from Egypt up there, this will be your land. Joseph came to the point of his death, and he was going to die in Egypt, and he said, when I die, 
I want you to take my bones. God's going to deliver you one day out of this land of Egypt. And I want you to take my bones. And I want you to carry them with you on the exodus. And I want you to bury them in that plot of land that God gave that, to, to Jacob. And that was his land. And so they did. All those years of wandering, they carried the bones of Joseph. And they buried them in this spot. This is where Jacob's well, where Joseph's bones were buried. Such history there. And this is where Jesus goes. And it says, one more part of background, knowing I'm giving you a lot of background, but it'll help you to see this story. One more part of background, it says, Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. Now let me share with you a note of Bible interpretation here. It literally says it was the sixth hour. Most of the newer translations translate that noon. I don't think it was noon. Let me share with you why. The synoptic gospels, that is the other three gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, clearly use the Jewish method of time calculation starting at sunrise and sunset. And so you start about 6 a.m. and the sixth hour would be 12 noon. That's clearly what Matthew, Mark, and Luke, where they count from. I don't think John, written later, uses the Jewish method. I think he uses the Roman method that we still use today of counting from midnight and noon. And so the sixth hour, I think, was 6 p.m. And I think that's why Jesus is tired. That's why they're going to get food for supper. That's why they invite him to stay the night later. Why is this important? Because if you take the translation of the NIV, the King James Version says sixth hour, the earlier NIV says sixth hour, in newer NIV and other new translations interpret it to be noon. If you take this to noon, you have a real problem when you harmonize the gospel. Because in Mark 15, uh, John it says that Jesus was crucified at 9 a.m., the sky turned dark at noon, and he died at 3 p.m. That's what all three of the first three gospels say. Well, John says that Jesus was before Pilate at the, at the uh, sixth hour, or the NIV will read at noon. Well, if he was on trial before Pilate at noon, you've got a conflict in the Bible. He can't be on the cross at nine, turns dark at noon, and then he's still before Pilate at noon. So how do you resolve that? I think what John is doing in his calculations, it makes it fit all the way through. He's using the method we do. So he's saying Jesus is there at the sixth hour. It's 6 a.m. when he's before Pilate, and then it fits in with those other Gospels. So I think it's 6 p.m. Uh, I'm probably in the minority there, but... Uh, it's my opinion. I'm sticking to it. So, all right. So, we get all that background. So, here we go. Verse 7. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. So, she comes to Jacob's well with a water pot on her head. Jesus says, Would you give me water when you draw water from the well? And the Samaritan woman said to him, You're a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink for Jews do not associate with Samaritans, or literally, you can see it in the footnote, Jews do not use the same vessels as Samaritans. They're not going to drink after one another. That's what he's saying. And Jesus answered, verse 10, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Jesus turns to offer her hope and life. Sir, verse 11, the woman said, you don't have anything to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? 
so she doesn't understand. She's on a physical plane. It's just like the conversation with Nicodemus, if you were here last week, when Jesus said, you must be born again, and he takes it on a physical plane. Can I enter my mother's womb again and be born again? How can I do that? She does the same thing. I'd give you living water. You don't have anything to draw with. How are you going to get living, running water from this well? And she says in verse 17, Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Well, that's the question, is it? And the answer is yes, he is greater than Jacob, and we're going to see that. Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternity eternal life Jesus offers to satisfy you as nothing else will Jesus offers to refresh you in your life Jesus offers to fulfill you he is the living water that gives a fresh start that gives eternal life She still doesn't get it. Verse 15, the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming back here to draw water. She's interested, but she doesn't exactly understand him yet. And so Jesus says in verse 16, he told her, Go call your husband. Go back to the village and call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you've had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. Why does Jesus go there? Why does Jesus bring that up? Is he being mean to bring up this woman's failures in her situation? Is he being judgmental and condemning? No, The only way that you'll have a fresh start is to confront your sin. And Jesus loves her, and you will not have a fresh start by glossing over your needs and your situation. You'll have a fresh start when you get desperate enough to say, I admit where I am, and Jesus in love is bringing her to the point of thirst so he can satisfy her. He is bringing up her her situation so that she'll confront that and come to embrace him as the answer to her needs. You see, if you're, not, you're here and you're not a Christian, I realize that non-Christians get the view that evangelical preachers are judgmental, condemning, because we talk about sin, we condemn some things in our society that are wrong, and so the, the view I know in our culture is, man, those Baptist evangelical preachers, they're just judgmental, they're negative, They don't love people. That's not true. We're just like Jesus. We're trying to be like Jesus. Who loved her enough to bring to her point of need. So the only reason we condemn sin is because that's the only way you're going to find a Savior when you know you're a sinner. And if you admit your need, the goal is to get you beyond that to the goodness of God and the water that he can give you. So this woman had five husbands the man she was living with now was not her husband. We don't know the situation there. Maybe some of them died. Maybe it wasn't her fault. But it sure sounds like she'd been through a series of broken relationships and had given up on marriage, and now they're just living together. So she says in verse 19, Sir, the woman said, I can see you're a prophet. 
or you wouldn't have known this, our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is Jerusalem. Sounds to me like she's trying to change the subject, right? When things sort of hit too close to home, sometimes we want to move to peripheral issues. Uh, I've talked with people sometimes before and asked them about the relationship with Christ, and they want to say, what about all the denominations, you know? And that's sort of what she's doing here. She's going to the divisions, the peripheral issues of where to worship, and and she's trying to move from the uncomfortable subject of her own needs in life. Where should we worship? Now, notice how Jesus responds to this. Verse 21, woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you'll worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem because he's the new temple, he's the plan of God, you worship through him alone. But he says in verse 22, you Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know for salvation is from the Jews. So notice how Jesus responds here. Many people today in regard to religion say it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere. You have your truth, that's your truth, and that's good for you, but I have my truth, and so all of these doctrinal differences, they don't matter. Just believe whatever you want to believe. Well, that's not what Jesus says. He says you're wrong in your place of worship because God has put his name in Jerusalem, and he's revealed that. If if what is said in our culture today was true, Jesus would have responded to her, your mountain, my mountain, it doesn't matter what mountain you worship on. You've got your truth, I've got my truth. As long as you're sincere, you just approach God in whatever way you want to. He doesn't say that, does he? He says salvation comes from the Jews. God put his name in Jerusalem, that's what you're supposed to do. But he doesn't dwell there. He goes on to say, yet, verse 23, a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and truth. You Samaritans and Jews can both approach the Father in a new and different way through me. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is Spirit and his worshipers must worship in the Spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming and when he comes he will explain everything to us and Jesus declared I the one speaking to you I am he Jesus says I'm the one you're looking for I'm the Messiah now note if you read the Gospels Jesus is not overt about his messiahship with the Jews. In fact, he tells some people to keep it quiet. I'm going to heal you, but keep it quiet and don't tell anybody. Why is he open with her? Because he's outside of Jewish territory, and he, among these Samaritans, can speak more freely. He is not ready for the confrontation that his messiahship will bring with the leaders of the Jews. And so when he is there, he, is, he must prepare his disciples. The hour has not yet come. He's willing to die, but not on their timetable. And so he keeps his messiahship low-key. But here, in Samaritan territory, where there is not that pressure, he speaks freely. And she says the messiah will clear all this up when he comes. And she, he says, you're looking at him. I am the messiah. And just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want or why are you talking to her? And then leaving her water jar, whether out of courtesy for them to drink or because she is in a hurry, she went back to the town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me everything I did. Could this be the Messiah? And they came out of the town and made their way toward him. 
And Jesus talks to disciples and, and uses it to teach them about planting and reaping. And then it says in verse 39, many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them. And he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. And they said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we've heard for ourselves and we know that this man man really is the savior of the world what a contrast with the story of Nicodemus the religious guy who had all the Old Testament background who should have believed and and yet was reticent and the very next chapter John gives us this story of these Samaritans of such animosity unlikely people and yet they believe that he's the savior of the world and John loves irony and he's showing us that many of the people who ought to believe didn't but many of those who would seem hopeless and farthest away came to see that he's the savior of the world Now I want you to think about this woman for a moment. I want you to think about her. She failed at marriage five times. Five times. And you know she didn't start out to be a five-time divorcee living with somebody, right? You know that when she went into that first marriage, she hoped and planned, is this going to be, this is going to be fulfilling, this is going to be wonderful. And then it failed, and I'm sure she had hope that second time. All right, it's been a mistake, but I've learned from that. And The second, it's going to be better. And don't you know, she had that same kind of hope. And perhaps with the third and the fourth time, maybe she's beginning to wonder and doubt herself and, and feel less about herself. And I wonder by the end of this fifth marriage if she's just saying, it's never going to work out for me. I'm hopeless. I'm worthless. I'm just giving up. I don't even care anymore. I'm just going to live with somebody. And I wonder, what do you think about her family? How how did they feel? Don't you think they had such high hopes for her all the way through? And don't you think there was that same dwindling of hope with them? Had her family by this point abandoned her? Had her friends said, man, she's, she's hopeless. She just, there's something wrong with her. She just cannot keep a relationship and she's just man I can't believe how don't you wonder if there was that gossip about don't you think that failure had probably just overcome her don't you think that she had probably reached a a point of of hopelessness and maybe those around her said she's never going to change boy she has she's just who she is I mean that's just that's just the way she is Somebody said one time, talked to them, and they said, "Uh, Honey, God gave up on me a long time ago. That's not true. Jesus offered this woman a fresh start of living water. And according to the scriptures, she believed in him, and she had a fresh start, and you can too. Maybe you're like this woman. Maybe some failures have colored your identity. Maybe you've gone bankrupt. Maybe you've gotten fired by, from a job. Maybe you have tried to, to get into law school, vet school, medical school, dental school. Maybe you've failed the bar. Maybe, you've, maybe you have failed at relationships. Maybe you've, you've kept going back to an addiction and your family has supported you and supported you and then now they've just given up on you. And you wonder if you're hopeless. And I pray you'll hear this story. 
of this woman. Divorced five times and living with somebody, and, and Jesus said to her, if you ask of me, I'll give you living water that'll quench your thirst and fulfill your life and give you a fresh start. Let me say to you, you she had a rough start, didn't she? It's more important how you finish than how you start. You may have had a rough start in some area of your life. Maybe you've kept going back to a sin over and over, and you wonder, I don't think I can break loose from this sin. There's a God who gives a fresh start even after multiple failures. It's more important how you finish than how you start. I want to tell you one of my favorite sports stories of failure, okay? 2004, Alexis Cerna was a freshman walk-on kicker for Oregon State University. Walk-on means you're not good enough that they give you a scholarship yet, you know. Freshman, first game, they played LSU, the defending national champions, in Baton Rouge. One of the hardest places for a visiting team to play in college football. And in his first game ever as a college kicker playing the defending national champions in Baton Rouge, he missed all three extra points that he tried to kick, and LSU won 22 to 21. If he had made two of the three, if he had made one of the three, he'd gone into overtime. Two of the three that won, he missed all three. And Alexis Cerna thought about quitting football. They're not giving me a scholarship anyway. Uh, he got such uh, pressure in the press. He decided the next week to go back out there. And he lined up for his first extra point after that game, and he made it. And he made the next one. And he made the next one. And he made 135 consecutive extra points. He never missed in college again. And the next year, he won the Lou Gorza Award for the best kicker in college football. They played USC his final year, number three in the nation. He kicked four extra points and three field goals and won the game. It's more important how you finish than how you start. Don't give up where you are. Tell you one more story. This from American history. Let me tell you for, about a man who at age 22 lost his job at a, as a store clerk. He, he tried to, to go to uh, law school because after that, and his grades were not good enough to get in the first time. He started a business. He went into debt and had to close his business. At 28, age 28, after courting a girl for four years, he asked her to marry him, and she said no. At age 32, he ran for Congress, and he lost. At age 34, he ran for Congress, and he lost. At age 36, he ran for Congress, and he won. But the next term, he was defeated when he ran for re-election. At age 45, he ran for Senate, and he lost. At age 47, he ran for vice president, and he lost. At age 49, he ran for Senate again, and he lost. And you would think, this guy is a loser. 
Nobody wants you in politics. Why don't you quit? You're a career politician trying to gain favor of people, and they don't want you. Quit. At age 51, he ran for president. He was elected president. His name is Abraham Lincoln. He's considered by many one of the greatest leaders in American history. It's more important how you finish than how you start. In the Bible, Rahab was a prostitute. Jacob was a liar and cheated his family. Moses, in his temper, committed manslaughter. None of them started very well, did they? All three of them are in the hall of faith in Hebrews 11 of Old Testament saints who are examples of faith. All three of them will be in heaven. It's more important how you finish than how you start. And so you may be like this woman, and maybe you've had failures in your life. And maybe you've grown hopeless. Maybe you've given up on yourself. Maybe your family's given up on yourself. I would have you to say that Jesus had not given up on her. And Jesus, although he was very direct with her, he said, go get your husband. He went there because he had to confront her sin. Jesus loved her. And Jesus brought her to the point where she found eternal life. And if you will come to be thirsty, there is one who can satisfy and fill you and give you a fresh start in life. And his name is Jesus. He wants to bring you out of a sense of hopelessness and failure and despair and he wants to give you that long, cool drink of life, of water that is eternal life. Would you stand together with me? We're going to sing a song of invitation. If today you would say, I want a fresh start in life. Maybe you haven't failed multiple times. Maybe you have. But if you'll come to Jesus... Believe that he's the Messiah, the Son of God, sent to be the Savior of the world, who died for us and rose again. If you'll put your faith in him, if you'll ask him to forgive your sin, and you'll say, I'll, I'll follow you as Lord of my life, you will be my God and my Lord, then he'll give you that living water and a fresh start in life. I want to invite you to walk forward while we're singing for prayer, to come to confess your faith in Christ, for baptism, to join our church. If God speaks to you, would you come? no song we could sing to honor the weight of your glory. There are no words we could speak to capture the depth of your beauty. Jesus, there's no There is no sinner beyond.
can I interrupt just before you get started? Uh, just this, this Wednesday night, we sang this song in children's choir. And just little Madeline Jernigan just sang it to the top of her lungs, in her, all of her heart. And so I want to invite her to come up here. And you go ahead and do your book. But when you're done, Madeline's going to sing this with us. Come on up here. How old are you? How old is she? Seven. seven. She's seven. Come on up here and sing. And so anyway, I, you go ahead. I just wanted to let people know why she's coming up here to sing with us. All right, sounds good. As mentioned before, today is open house in our connection group. So if you're not part of a connection group, today's the day. Go ahead and walk by the Welcome Center and talk to somebody there who can get you plugged in to the right group for you. And so there's really no reason today. Go check one out. Get connected to some people here at this church that you can have relationships and friendships here. Uh, as we've worshipped in song and in the Word, With no further ado, Tom, go ahead and uh, take it away from here. Let's sing. Here we go. <laughs> but you stand and let's just close out with this song together. Jesus, there's no one like you. 